Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Noah fell into drunkenness and how we can scripturally avoid the dangerous temptations to drinking alcohol. Download this message for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's some highlights from this week's messages. And then we saw there was nothing left for God to do. There was no other option except for him to resort to this worldwide destruction that happened in the flood. And that's when he said, I will destroy man whom I have created. So God wants Noah and his sons to know how much he hates to judge man. How much? Because why? Because God is for man. And God does not want to judge man. And God does not want to send anyone to hell. He doesn't. And he explains that the rainbow is a token. It's a token of a covenant that he's made there. And he says that when this token is seen, this rainbow, it's a continual reminder. Now here's Tom Cantor as we conclude our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday expository study from the book of Genesis. So there are many instances in the Bible where wine is in a good light. Good light. Solomon gave a flagon of a piece of good piece of flesh, or maybe it was David, and a flagon of wine to everybody when they came to Jerusalem one time. Anyway, on the other hand, there are many instances in the Bible where wine is in a bad light. For example, here with Noah, where it brought about, uh, we also saw that it brought about this wicked union between Lot's uh, two daughters. Wine was not to be drunk by the Nazarite, who had given himself to God. Wine was not, if you wanted to have rational thinking, as it says in Proverbs 31, 4 and 5, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Now, the, the next verses after that tell how wine is to be used. It says, Give strong drink unto him that's ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. So it's to escape reality. You know, the, you know that. Remember I told you I used that verse in Japan uh, at dinners with Japanese businessmen when they would ask me to drink sake, wine, and whiskey. And I'd say, you know, the Bible says to give strong drink to him that's dying. <laughs> and to the heavy-hearted. And I said, your company doesn't make me feel like I'm dying, and I don't feel heavy-hearted. <laughs> so, so wine is seen in both good and bad lights. But, but the Bible has warnings about wine. And that's why it says in 1 Timothy 3.8, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, nor greedy of filthy lucre. Titus 2.3 says that for the women, aged women, it says, likewise, they should be, they be in behavior, becometh holiness, not false accusers, nor given to much wine, teachers of good things. So evidently from those two verses, we understand that the problem of the excess of wine was a problem in Paul's day. And in Proverbs 21.17, it says, he that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. So here, wine is described as a tempting lover that it's easy to fall in love with. Proverbs 20, verse 1, says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. So wine is called here a mocker, a deceiver. Why? Because it promises 
It promises one thing, and then it tricks and fools and gives something else. It delivers something else. And you might want to turn now to Proverbs 23, 29, which is really describing what wine delivers, what it actually delivers. Proverbs 23, 29 says, it asks some questions, and then it gives some answers. So the questions that it starts off with, it starts off with, with four questions, five questions, six questions. Who hath woe? Question one. Who hath sorrow? Question two. Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? And the answer, they that tarry long at the wine. They that seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it's red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. And that'd be when grape juice turns to wine. At the last, it biteth like a serpent, it stingeth like an adder. Thine eye shall behold strange women, thine heart shall, be, shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say. I was not sick. They have beaten me. I felt it not. When shall I awake? I'll seek it yet again. So wine is always inviting to stay a while, tarry long at the wine, have another drink, just another drink. And wine is likened here to a venomous snake. Looks nice, and you get close, and it bites. It stings like an adder. It causes a letting down of the guard, which leads to sexual immorality. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Wine is addicting. It has a voice. It calls right from the bottle. It calls a person's name. It calls your name. And, it said, and that's the, I will seek it yet again. So wine or alcohol is portrayed in the Bible as a temptation, especially to those who are really alcoholics but deny it. So what can we conclude? It's not a sin to drink a little wine. But with all the Bible warnings against excess use, of how it can easily lead to addiction, of how it perverts rational, clear thinking, of how it's portrayed as a mocker, as a deceiver, like a snake, how it brings down the guard against sexual sins, of how it leads to do things that afterwards you wish you hadn't done. Noah did something he normally would not have done because of it when he succumbed to this indulgence in wine, and wine brought Noah a great sorrow where... Afterward, he wished he hadn't done. And we see how wine has has wrecked so many homes and killed so many people on the roads. And it leads to destruction of reputation. I mean, Noah was, look, look at Noah, he was the great leader. But as great as Noah was, he had a weakness for wine. And he got drunk and he exposed himself. And wine brought to Noah a great loss of reputation. And it's a temptation to others as well who may be struggling with wine. By using wine, we can bring the downfall of someone else, as what happened in Noah's case. Now, aren't those enough reasons for us to conclude that it's just a good idea to avoid alcohol altogether, or at least to respect the Bible's warnings and dangers and restrict it to very rare occasions and a very small quantity? Alcohol's dangerous. It's a dangerous drink in a world of fallen men. The waters of the flood didn't destroy Noah, but what did harm him was this unguarded indulgence in wine. So what we're seeing here in Genesis 9.21 is that wine deceived Noah because like a snake, it looked good at the start, but then it stung him. He caused Noah to lose his rational judgment of what to do. It caused Noah to let down his guard 
in the sexual area. It caused Noah to be mocked by his son. It caused Noah to lose his reputation. It caused Noah to regret what he did when he was drunk. And so it says there in verse 21, he was uncovered. Now, for Noah, that was a deliberate act of Noah. It doesn't mean that he was in the middle of changing his clothes and the sun just walked on him. It means that Noah had deliberately made himself naked in his tent, and it wasn't right, and God doesn't want to give us any more details, and we don't want any more details. We want to be like Shem and Japheth and uh, turn our back and not see this shame and wrong. Uh, but in uh, verse 22, Ham, Father Canaan, he saw the nakedness of his father. He told his two brethren without. Now, when it says Ham saw the nakedness of his father, it doesn't mean that he walked into his tent, got a glimpse that his father had no clothes on, covers his eyes and says, oh, no, I'm sorry, and go and tell his brothers. That's not what it means. It doesn't say that Ham saw his father naked. It says that Ham saw the nakedness of his father. Ham took time to get a look, get a good look at the nakedness of his father. That was wicked. By the way, moms and dads, Don't ever let your children see you naked. Don't do that. Don't bring your children. Don't bring your children to the shower with you. Don't when they're little. Don't bring them to the bathtub with you. It's wrong. Now, it says in verse 22 that Ham told his two brothers without. Now, he probably told them like an invitation. Why don't you guys come in and see this too? This is really something. He's really making a fool out of himself. You've got to see this. And that's maybe. And then verse 23 it says that Ham, no, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their, both their shoulders and went backward and covered their nakedness to their father and their faces were backward. They didn't see the naked, father's nakedness. So they refused to disrespect their father. And instead of expanding the shame of their father, Shem and Japheth did something wonderful. That's a great picture here of Shem and Ham. It's, it's really something. I mean, quickly... We can see Shem and Ham, and they're figuring out the plan, and they come up with the plan. They're going to cover their fathers, and they're going to do it in a way that they don't see his naked body. So they take this large garment, like a large coat, and Shem gets on one side under it, and Ham, he gets on, I mean, Japheth, he gets on the other side, and like a large, am I saying it right? Shem and Japheth, right? And they get in there, and they're, they're walking backwards, you know? Okay, now, let's walk together now. And they get over to their father, maybe bump into him or something, and then they let go of the cloak. I mean, it's really something, you know? And then they say, okay, now we turn around, because the father's clothed, you know, he's got the, and we cover them all up, and, uh, and, and, and come on, Dad, let's, uh, let's lie down, sleep it off. Let's, let's, so take some time, Dad, sober, so stay, stay covered and sleep. And that's a beautiful picture for us. That's wonderful. I mean, there's several beautiful pictures in here. One of them is that of these two brothers working together to protect their father. Isn't that beautiful? The working together part. You know, they get the Psalm 133 Medal of Honor, each one. Here you go, Shem. Here you go, Japheth. And what does it say? It says, Behold, how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together, or you might say to work together in unity. It's like precious ointment. It ran down upon the head and drained down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and went down to the skirts of his garment, as the dew of Hermon, the dew that descends upon the mountain Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So we see this beautiful picture of the two sons here working in unity as they both agree that they should not accept their younger brother's invitation to look on their father's nakedness, but instead they agreed that they should do this to cover 
his nakedness. Now, there's a second beautiful picture here. And that is, when someone sins, as their father did, that each one of us comes to a crossroad. And that road's called the Ham Road. And this road's called the Shem and Japheth Road. It's a crossroads. And if we take the Ham Road, then we gossip and talk and expand it and how wrong this person was. And it's like looking on their nakedness. But if we take the Shem and Japheth Road, we don't think about the wrong and we don't spread it. We just cover it. Like Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 8, when he said, above all things, have fervent charity or love among yourselves. For charity or love shall cover a multitude of sins. So they loved their father. And so they covered his nakedness. And and can't you see in that how Shem and Japheth are just like God? I mean, what happened in the garden when Adam sinned? He, all of a sudden, he was exposed. He felt exposed, this nakedness. So what did God do? Did God sit back there and say, ah, you know, he didn't, God didn't go right to work to cover him, to cover his nakedness. That's what they did. Okay, now, verse 24, Noah comes to. Noah woke from his wine, woke from his wine, knew what his younger son had done to him. So Noah slept it off, woke up sober, but he knew what his son had done to him. Not done, but what his son had done to him. He knew that. You know, this whole history of Noah, this is not very easy to read. And it's kind of shocking for us. It's so disappointing. I mean, this was Noah who was called by God the just man, perfect in his generations walking with God. This was the one who God said that he examined and found him to be righteous in his generations, in Genesis 6, 9. This was the Noah who did according to all that the Lord commanded him, in Genesis 6, 22. This was Noah who God blessed, in our chapter, verse 1. This was Noah who God spoke to directly, verse 8. This was Noah who had just received this covenant for all generations. After all that, all that, Little did Noah know that just around the corner from that lay the temptation of his life that he would fall in. And the great lesson for us to learn from this is that we are the most vulnerable, as Noah was, right after a great blessing or deliverance because that's the time when pride gets in and that's the time when we're tempted to let our prayer guard down. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said, daily you pray this prayer. He said, daily, Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. He says, in other words, pray this every day. And he says, forgive us our debts, we forgive our debtors. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what he taught. Because temptation's lying around the corner for us. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, wherefore let him that thinketh, he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. We're all subject to falling. We all are. And it's only our reliance on God that will keep us from falling. Our age as a Christian cannot keep us from falling. Noah fell, and Noah walked with God 600 years before he fell. Our past victories cannot keep us from falling. Noah fell, and Noah was perfect and righteous in his generation before this. Our knowledge of the scriptures cannot keep us from falling. Noah fell, and God spoke to Noah directly. Our ministry cannot keep us from falling. Noah fell, and Noah was God's preacher of righteousness to the world. Our past deliverances 
from temptation cannot keep us from falling. Noah fell, and Noah was delivered from the world that was destroyed by the flood. None of those provide any basis for security against us from falling in temptation. We have to do what Paul taught us in Galatians 6.1 when he said, Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We're in as much danger of falling as Noah was, therefore we need to always be on our guard. Now, as we finish this chapter, because this is what we're doing, we're finishing the chapter on Noah, history of Noah, we can't help but see the parallels between Noah and Adam. Both came into a world that had emerged from water, Genesis 1.9 and 8.1. Both were blessed with dominion over the animals, Genesis 1.26 and 9.2. Both were told to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28 and 9.1. Both were warned by God about sin, Genesis 2.17 and 8.21. Adam's sin resulted in the exposure of his nakedness. Noah's sin was the nakedness itself, Genesis 3.7 and 9.21. And both were covered by another, Genesis 3.21 and 9.23. With that, we bring our study today to a close with the picture of Shem and Japheth covering their father and the reminder to us Going back to Adam of how God covers our sin with his precious blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being the God who covers us. Lord, many, many titles are wonderful about you, but this one really means a lot to us this morning, the God who covers us. We thank you, Lord, for the picture of Shem and Japheth covering the nakedness of their father, and we thank you for the meaning as we've seen it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, we've been covering the topic of liquor in the Bible and how dangerous it is. But how are we to resist the temptation to being drawn in by liquor? You know, the Bible gives us a word, and this word is the word know. It's the word K-N-O-W. It's what we know or what we need to know. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, What know? Ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. What this verse is telling us is that as believers, we must know that our body is different after we've received the Lord Jesus Christ. The one universal creed of all the church down through the centuries has been one statement. Jesus is Lord. There's many things that many Christians don't agree with, but true believers all agree that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of our bodies. And so our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost, which, and God is in us, and we are not our own. Why are we not our own? Because he is Lord of our lives. It says in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, Again, the word know, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we know that we have been purchased, 100% purchased. That transaction was made. We were bought. We were paid for in full. That means that 
from the tip of our head to the tip of our toes, every single part of our body has been bought and paid for by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are not our own, as it said in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. We are the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that those eyes of ours are not our own eyes. They've been bought by the Lord. And uh, those eyes are to be used by him to look for opportunities for, for bringing the help of God to needy people. That brain of ours is not our own brain. That brain is to be used by God for, for God's purpose so that we think God's his thought process, what his thought processes are, that we think of how we can bring the gospel to a needy person, of how we we can bring the healing of the word of God to those who need it. That's what we do with the brain that God has bought. These hands are not our own hands. These hands have been bought They've been paid for. We are to do the work of God with these hands. Our feet are not our own. Those feet of ours have been bought so that we are to go into, into as God would send us to be used by him, to be an ambassador for God, to do the work of God. Every part of us has been bought. And what God has bought our whole body for is not to make it drunk with liquor. And that's why he says in Ephesians five eighteen through 21, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Okay. But instead, he goes on to say, but be filled with the Spirit. So our bodies, which have been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, are to be used to be filled with the Spirit of God not to be made drunk with wine. And as we fill ourselves with the, with the Spirit of God, then in, we speak to, it says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. In other words, you think of what does liquor do? When a person gives in to drunkenness, he yields his whole self to the liquor. The liquor takes over the person. The person begins to to, to babble, to speak, or to, to free all this kind of thing. Just go on and on. And 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 sometimes they're happy. Sometimes they're depressed. It depends. But by contrast with that, when we give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit as opposed to liquor. It's not by accident that liquor is called spirits because it's also similar. A person yields themselves to the spirits in the bottle, but the believer yields himself from the spirit from heaven, the Holy Spirit. And what happens is that we do speak to ourselves, but we speak good things. We speak to ourselves the Psalms of David. We sing hymns that magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. We're happy. We sing spiritual songs. We just make melody in our heart to God. We sing to God when we are filled with the Spirit of God. These are not just melodies and catchy tunes and things like that, but we're actually 
actually singing as a choir to God. We're lifting up our hearts and we're singing to the Lord. What a joy it brings to us. Happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, all these things come. And the next thing that comes is that we begin to give thanks always for all things unto God, not just for the good things, but also for the afflictions because we, we say, oh, thank you for that affliction. If I had not been afflicted, I would have not have sought you. I would have not have come to you. I would not have found you in this great new way. So we give thanks for all things unto God, to the Father, and it's all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So religion becomes reality, this great transformation where the religion of just the the tradition and the cold and sterility of it becomes the reality of from our hearts singing and making melody to the Lord. And then it has a great effect on other people. It doesn't, the liquor doesn't cause us to fight other people, but in verse 21, being filled with the Holy Spirit causes us to submit ourselves one to another, so peace comes in the fear of God. So that's what it means for us to view ourselves as bought by the Lord Jesus Christ and be filled with his Spirit. Thank you for joining us today. Now, Israel Restoration Ministries has an opportunity if you're listening in the Southern California area, and this opportunity is to become a full-time missionary working for Israel Restoration Ministries. You'll be a courier of the gospel to the Jewish people. So if you're interested in going door-to-door, reaching lost Jewish people right where they're at, building relationships with them, and discipling God's lost chosen nation of people, please contact us today at Israel Restoration Ministries at one 800 247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. If you know someone that's qualified, 1-800-247-3051. It's, again, it's open in San Diego, Orange County, Southern California area, 1-800-247-3051. But if you have a heart to reach a lost Jewish person, call us today. We'll give you a free gift, 1-800-247-3051. Reach God's lost nation of Jewish people.